I'm Michael Laurie, and you're listening to the Ulster Rugby Roundup. The Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast with open reach, building the broadband network that connects us all. Check for ultra-fast, ultra-reliable, full-fibre broadband at openreach.co.uk forward slash ni. Hello and welcome to the Ulster Rugby Roundup, now in association with Openreach. It's time for Ulster's mid-season report and with me to run through the impressive aspects as well as the must-do-betters are Adam McAndrew. Hello. And commentator Mark Robson. Hello. Mark, that was very enthusiastic. I thought I was a commentator for a second there. I was in my commentator mode. Project your voice. Welcome back. You were on once last season. Yeah, enjoyed it. A year ago, I think it was. And uh, let's get... uh, Rocking and rolling here. Your second appearance. You'll be on for, for your hat trick next. So we'll begin this afternoon then with a look at Ulster's 22-15 victory over Bath last weekend. They made fairly hard work of getting that last European quarter final place. Because last week we were saying Ulster are going to get to win this match easily and we barely really talked about the Bath match because we, we had it chalked <laughs> off as an easy win. It didn't really work out that way. Yeah, it ended up being a lot closer than we thought. Um, but I think what one of the main things was... They got the job done. And I think that's the main thing. You were looking at it and you were thinking maybe Harlequins could do them a favour against Claremont. And that It looked like it might actually happen for a while, but then it didn't. So they were really just playing for sixth place in the in the seedings. And once they knew that was all they needed, then that's all that really mattered. Got the four points, got the job done, and now you're just looking ahead to April. I think one of the biggest problems was Ulster scored early. <laughs> Obviously, you don't not want to score early, but... Whenever Katsia goes over, what, after five minutes or something like that, it was, it was so early, everyone just kind of relaxed into that feeling of, okay, we know how this is going to go. The team that has something to play for is going to romp to win. The team that doesn't is just going to sort of play second fiddle in this game. And what they didn't realise was Bath were actually up for the fight. And so whenever they came back into it, um, uh, McConaughey goes over for that try in the corner, all of a sudden you're in that position of, oh boy, we're actually in a game here. And it took half time for Dan McFarland to say something and say, you know, lads, we're in a game here. Get your get your ideas into gear. The first sort of 10 minutes of the second half was the perfect response. Mm. It's not the perfect performance from Ulster. And they know that. But I think Dan McFarland came up afterwards and said he was really, really pleased. And I think that probably says a lot about where Ulster's mindset was for that game. And it was get the job done, get into the quarterfinals, and then you can focus on that sort of whenever it comes around. I mean, there's very much American mentality of get into the playoffs and then once you're in there, mm-hmm. anything can happen. So I think knowing that that home quarter final was probably beyond them meant that four points was all they wanted, all mm-hmm. they needed, and that's what they were happy getting. I think there was a, a wee touch of not taking the eye off the ball, but taking it for granted. I just thought we looked very nervous. I mean, Ulster were almost as terrified as me. I ended up behind the sofa chewing my feet. Um, And Bath were much more motivated, I think, than anybody expected them to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, And Ulster, to me, once they scored that early try through Kutsia, kind of switched off. And thank goodness for Ennis Gillen, because Addison and (laughs) Balakun combined for the try and and then Addison involved in, in in the next one in scoring that try that made the difference at the beginning of the second half. And even then, Ulster weren't able to relax. And again, it came back to bite Ulster. And it's been a problem all season, and particularly in Europe. I don't think Ulster have played well at home in any of their European games against mm-hmm. Clermont. Came here and were verging on disgraceful in the, in the way that they played. They put virtually nothing into it. 
got a bonus point. That should have been denied. Also, Harlequins at home, really Harlequins, should have won that game. Cooney obviously kicking that penalty in the 78th minute. Um, but the set piece going forward in Europe onto the Toulouse game. Toulouse have got a phenomenal defensive line-out. They've won 19 line-outs on the opposition through this season in Europe. And Ulster's set piece, I'm sorry to say, has been has been awful. We've lost 33 line-outs this season, 11 in the opposition, 22, 23 scrum penalties conceded. They've won 12 in the two competitions. Rob Herring, I know it's a many tentacle thing, the line-out, but he's been the thrower for 23 of those 33 lost line-outs. And I've also wanted to progress at that. Pro 14, we kind of get away with it. I mean, the set piece was very poor against Munster and against Connacht. We still managed to score more than 35 points against both sides. But when you take that step up, like moving into Toulouse, the, the, the set piece has to be nailed. Mm-hmm. And the problem to me is that our first choice front row was really strong. Jack McGrath, Rob Herring, Marty Moore. And it's not the fault of Eric O'Sullivan or Tom O'Toole. They're excellent players in the loose, but they're only 20, 21. Mm-hmm. As, as a scrummaging unit, then we're very thin. And as we saw in Clermont, good example of it, and in other games in Europe and elsewhere, once we go down that level as a scrummaging unit, we start to give away penalties. And the line-out is a persistent problem, and that's a carryover from last season. What do you put and that a, down to? Because well, there, are, there are so many questions about Rory's involvement in line-outs, now he's gone, still a problem. It's a question for Rob Herring, the units, Ian Henderson and Roddy Grant. I don't know. Maybe it's a, a dose of the yips when Rob Herring... Look, Rob Herring's a very fine player... But the fact that Ulster lose quite a few lineouts in the opposition 22, and at critical moments, if you remember at the end of the Bath game at the Rec and also the Bath game here, Rob Herring had a couple of opportunities to, to nail lineouts. We, we lost the ball, we turned it over, and in both games, Bath almost stole the match or got a draw in the case here at the end, at the end of the match. So yeah, I'm not trying to point the finger in any way at, at Rob Herring here. We all know that the line-out is a, a unit skill. It's just that Rob Herring is our number one hooker. So he's obviously going to be at the apex of any problem yeah. you point out in the line-out. But the set piece must improve. A lot of other areas in Ulster's game, I think, are, are, are fabulous. Setting aside the nervousness from the mm-hmm. game, which was understandable perhaps against Bath. The way Ulster have improved, they're offloading their, their, their passing skills. To me, they're trying to play with, with more width. You find McCluskey on the wing, you find Reedy on the ring, on the wing. They're not quite getting it right yet because, as you well know, we've seen a lot of occasions where the Ulster players have been tackled into touch in the wing positions because they seem to me as if they're trying to adapt and evolve to a slightly different style. And the thing that's impressed me the most this season is, is the layering of players' skills. And I think you've got to look to, to uh, Dan Soper to that, the, the skills coach, you know, Sean Reedy now runs phenomenal support lines. He's not just a great defender. Mm-hmm. He's offloading. He's delivering perfect passes. Tom O'Toole's carrying is 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 off the charts. Stuart McCluskey's passing game, his decision-making, he's grubbering off both feet for tries. There are so many players who have upskilled massively this season. Mm-hmm. And also in attack, Dwayne Peel and Dan McFarland gave him great credit recently. Our Ulster keeps saying our Ulster's conversion rate inside the opposition twenty two this season has been absolutely top class. Mm-hmm. The All Blacks are raved about for their conversion rate inside the twenty two. We're getting close to that standard at the Pro fourteen European level. I mean, only Leinster have scored more tries in the Pro fourteen. 
than Ulster. Yeah. Ulster now take their chances in a very clinical and skillful way. So there's a huge amount to be very proud about and very happy mm. about. But it's the set piece! <laughs> As regards your half-term report, that could probably just be it. We could just wrap up the whole night. Um, I don't need to add any more there, but it's, it's interesting you talk about the attack. I think the variation is really impressive. You know, you're looking at McCluskey adding that passing element. We know he's had it, but he's actually using it a lot more. You draw the defenders, you pass it out to the wing. We saw, I mean, Robert Balakoon's being given a lot of praise for that wee out, outside the back flick to Will Addison, but I thought the pass from Luke Marshall before that, a big looping pass. But it's so accurate and it's so quick as well. There's a lot of different layers, as you say, that Ulster have brought to their attack this year. And it just keeps defences honest. It just keeps them guessing. And I think that's why we've seen more line breaks. We've seen more defenders beaten. Because we're putting guys in... I'm now saying we, this is a problem. Yeah. <laughs> but Ulster are putting guys into space where they can utilise that. I think Balakoon being put into that little half bit of space... And he's got the pace to beat anyone that he's up against. You see McCluskey getting into those positions where he's able to ride a tackle and get that offload away. I think Ulster are just using what they've got to, at their disposal in the proper way. And that also comes from having that pack now that they can use where guys will add those carries that they'll create space out wide for other guys. That's something that Ulster haven't had for a while, but now they've got, you know... Jack McGrath, Marty Murray making those bursts. They've added in Matty Ray in that back row, who I've been really impressed with. Just adding that little bit of extra ballast. You suck in one more defender, and that opens up so many more opportunities in the backs. And I think that's where Ulster have really taken strides this year. And the, the ability to manipulate defences, and Billy Burns is actually a, a master at that. You don't know whether he's going to keep the ball in hand, little short pop passes, or those you know assist cross kicks, which have led to, to several tries this season. And then, as Andrew Trimble pointed out to me, that keeps your defence very, very honest because they yeah. don't know what Ulster are going to do next. There, there's, mm. there's, there's great subterfuge and disguise now about the Ulster attack that there wasn't there that wasn't there before. And I think Luke Marshall des- deserves great credit because he's he's almost like the unknown soldier in that back line. He does everything so subtly, but. He makes very, very few mistakes. And again, maybe this is back to Dan Soper and also the qualities of Luke Marshall himself. His decision-making is generally Mm. spot on. Mm. The the mistakes, it's a very low error count. If we talk about Ulster's top three players in that first half of the season, you mentioned him earlier, Marcel could say, I'm going to assume he is uh, going to be in both of your top threes. At the weekend, he got that try. So close to setting up Gilroy. What a run that was from. 11 carries, 17 tackles. Just what... As he meant for Ulster this season and on at the weekend. He's epic. I mean, he's. He, one of the things that I love about Marcel Coutier is that he never accepts a tackle. He drives through contact every single time he gets the ball. And to me, you know, Ulster talk about. You know, brotherhood, bite, belief, fight for every inch, squeeze every drop. He's the epitome of that. Every time he gets the ball, he is going to keep charging like a rhino until somebody brings him down or stops him. And I think that inspires the players around him. And also, of course, it guarantees Ulster that uh, valuable front foot ball. But uh, as a human being and what he brings to this Ulster side in terms of, of energy... It's phenomenal. And that's why, you know, if Ulster want to progress this season and get beyond the stages they did last season, he's got to stay fit. Could say in your top three, I assume. Ulster have talked a lot this season about how you look at the guy beside you and is he willing to put his body on the line for you? Yes, then you've got to be willing to put your body on the line for him. Mm-hmm. 
Marcel could say whenever he makes those carries, you're absolutely right. You want to make a carry for him to take the workload off him so he's able to do it without having to, you know, make a carry every other phase. So, yeah, he's in my top three 100%. And we've talked about it before, just how much Ulster rely on him for that go-forward ball and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. But whenever you've got that guy in the back row that you know you can turn to nine times out of ten, he will get you over the game line. That's such a quality asset to have in your back row. Who else would you have? Well, it's... It's pretty obvious to me. I, I see the spine of the team as Cooney, McCluskey and Cootsie. And we all know, know the reasons why. Uh, Stuart McCluskey uh, gives you that extra ball-carrying capacity, plus the offloading game, the more subtle passing game that he now has, the more all-round all game that he has. He's very much a focal point in that back line. And I don't think I have to talk about John Cooney and the qualities that he has brought to this Ulster side. Uh, slight concern for John Cooney uh, last week was that he wasn't, Man of the match, <laughs> whereas Connor Murray and Luke McGrath both won the Man of the Match awards playing elsewhere in round six of Europe. So I wonder will that affect the selection of Andy Farrell? Get us him from the Ireland squad. Bring him back, <laughs> bring him back to Ulster. We'll be happy with him here. Um, those would be my top three as well. Yeah. So I'm not going to disagree, but I'm going to throw one more name into the mix. Is probably a top four. Marty Murr, I think. Mm. One of the things that was always levelled as a criticism at Marty Murr was that he didn't quite have the physique of a rugby player. He looked like he was carrying a bit too much weight. But for a guy who is probably one of the bigger guys in the Ulster squad, he really puts himself about that pitch. His fitness levels must be one of the top fitness levels of the guy in the squad because he's always there. He's always making his tackles big in the scrum there are very few guys will get the better of him in the scrum and I really think Ulster missed him on Saturday against Bath that's nothing against Tom O'Toole who I think has had an outstanding season as well but I think you just missed that little bit of something that Marty Moore brings you both in terms of his carrying and his scrum presence as well I think he's been really big for Ulster this mm-hmm. season I think that's that's why it's really good he's um he got recognized by getting into the stock take in the, in the Ireland squad and I think He's probably not in the Six Nations squad because of this injury that he picked up against Claremont. So, I mean, I think he's been one of the key players in Ulster. If you're talking about the spine of the team, I think he's probably part of that as well. And for me, I go back to that layering point. I mean, Marty Moore at Wasps and at Leinster, to me, he's a much more complete player. I mean, he gets involved now at the breakdown. He's turning the ball over. He's making a lot more tackles. He's carrying the ball. He's scrummaging really well. And when Marty Moore comes off the field now, when he's playing for Ulster, he is beyond exhausted. And I think Dan McFarland has demanded that of Marty Moore. If you were going to write a report card then for the head teacher, head coach, Dan McFarland, what would you say about Dan's impact, particularly this season, and how he's guiding the team? Eight or nine out of ten. I mean, from from two years ago where Ulster sat, the Anas Horribilis and, and from where where they are now, getting into the knockout stages of Europe for the second year in a row. I mean, it's remarkable, really. You think about it. Ulster won eight consecutive pool games in Europe. Now, Leinster just achieved their record run when they beat Benetton, which was their ninth consecutive pool win. Oh. Ulster are, are now operating in that stratosphere yeah. in Europe. It, it, it really is astonishing. Mm. And I don't think we should forget for one minute where Ulster were before Dan McFarland arrived. 
you only have to talk to any of the players to sort of hear how much he's meant to these guys. Like, changing up the entire squad mentality, as Robo said there, you know, this was a team that were in dire straits whenever he took over. This was a team that hadn't made the quarterfinals for, at that point, three years, four years. They're a team that were scraping into the playoffs in the Pro 14 and then not doing anything else, if even getting into the playoffs. And he's come in and he's just brought that new fresh mentality of we are a squad, here's where we are and here's where we want to get to. And they're constantly talking about this journey. They know that they're a work in progress and I think that's probably one of the biggest things. He hasn't come in and he's tried to oversell himself to anyone. He hasn't come in and said, right, let's go compete for trophies right now. He's brought in this fresh mentality of we are a team in transition. So let's get from point A to point B. We've got these points to get through, first of all, and then we'll work together to complete that journey. I think they're a lot further on in the journey than what he probably expected. If Ulster had had the season they had last season, this season, I think he probably would have said that they were on track. The fact Mm. that they're beyond that and they're progressing is probably a testament to just how well he has worked. And it's bringing that mentality back in of we are a proud province we play for the badge we play for the people on the terraces we care about who we represent i think he's brought that back in all the stuff around that of the wolf pack mentality of the fight for every inch the squeeze every drop we're not happy with you know anything less than our 100 percent. and i think that's why ulster are back where they are because he demands mm-hmm. so much out of the guys and they respond to that mm-hmm. they respond positively to that and you just see that throughout the squad that they're able to bring in these guys you know your young guys like i know they played down in the rds and meaningless game but you bring on guys like ethan mcelroy Ezra allison guys who are going to be part of this squad going forward and they come in and it's if they've played games all their lives it's, it's as if they've been part of the squad for years rather than making their debut so I think that's that's just the big thing that Dan's brought in it's that new mentality he's just he's recognised what there is to work with and very similar to Johnny Petrie as CEO he's gone out into the province and he's realised what makes Ulster tick and he's mm. brought that into the squad and that's why he's yeah. been so successful we've probably yeah. already covered the, the most two betters of the, the set piece well Leave them to work yeah. on that one. Um, can I, just before we go on, can I just thank Chris Hagan, former Ulster staffer here, for providing me with those uh, set-piece stats. He now runs a, a Twitter handle called Enhance. I, I recommend you, you look it up because there are some great stats in there. So, Chris, thank you very much for helping me out with the Ulster set-piece statistics we'll for today. Uh, before we move on to the Ireland squad, Kieran Troedwell was obviously cited. We're still waiting for the result of his hearing, which should be out any time now, basically. But what did we make of, of that challenge and citation? I, I only saw it on my phone on Twitter. It, it didn't actually... I was quite surprised that it was a citing offence. I looked at it a little bit more closely and thought, yeah, okay, I can see why it was cited. But it would not surprise me if it was dismissed or it was maybe a one-week suspension. It was It was in no way in the league of the, the Ross Batty challenge, which yeah. for me was a... A straight red card. I don't know why Jacques Tati, as I call him, uh, Alexandre Ruiz. Maybe you're too young to remember Jacques Tati, the great French I comedian. Monsieur, I, look at YouTube, Monsieur Hulot's Holiday, because Alexandre Ruiz has exactly the same mannerisms as Jacques Tati in that old 
black and white movie. But it took him forever and his officials to come to a decision there. For me, that was a straight red. One replay, get him off. The Treadwell one for me is way down the grade in terms of uh, maliciousness and, and intent there. Toulouse then is the destination for the quarterfinal. We now know, I think that's what we had suggested last week was the most likely outcome, wasn't it? I'm so. delighted. Rather go to Toulouse in <laughs> April than Devon in April. I said that many times last week uh, and I am now delighted. I was sitting there on Sunday night during the second half of the Toulouse game. I had four tabs open. Flights to Exeter, flights to Toulouse and hotels for both. And I was praying that it was Toulouse. So I'm delighted. We're uh, waiting also for the exact date and time of that one. By the time this comes out, you'll probably be able to look that one up. Um, what do we make of the, the prospect rugby-wise for, for us? Toulouse, Toulouse, Toulouse. Well, I wa- I've watched four other pool games. Um, I'd be concerned. And the main reasons for that are, first of all, Toulouse won the top 14 last season for the first time in seven years. So that was a big tech goal achieved. Uh, they're That's looking as well this year. Yeah, yeah, well, they're, they're mid-table at the moment, but I think their focus is very much on Europe, especially as this is the 25th anniversary. They won the first one 25 years ago when Emmy Lintemac was the captain of Toulouse, lifted the trophy, and his, his son, Romain, is playing for Toulouse now. And Having watched those four games, uh, Toulouse can play in a couple of ways and, and in a combination of two ways. They've got a very big pack that can dominate you. They've got that competitive line-out on their ball and, and, and especially an opposition ball. They've got a, a massive scrum, but they've also got a very, very light-footed, quick backline. Look at Antoine Dupont, Intermax, Sophia Jutun, Cheslin Colby, Thomas Ramos at fullback. They're actually a very, very small backline, but they're very slippery and very, very hard to catch. And what they're very good at from what I've seen in those pool games is switching the play from the right to left and left to right. So they move people around very, very quickly yeah. through their backline. And also, they, they've won three, three away games in the pool. They won nine away games in the top 14 last season they're very very comfortable at home they're very very comfortable away from home and that that to me shows a side that is very happy in its own skin they're playing with remarkable confidence and they are a massive threat and and again it has to go back to the set piece the set piece against Toulouse if it does not function well out there Ulster are not going to win that game at that level because you're taking a big step up against the top 14 champions who are very very zeroed in on Europe this season I don't think Toulouse will have wanted to get Ulster. I don't think a lot. I don't think any of those teams with home quarterfinals would have been looking at the teams who are going to be travelling away and would have thought we'd quite like to get Ulster because I think Ulster will be a, a bogey team for mm-hmm. anyone that they come up against. But you go back to whenever Ulster played them in what was it, twenty fifteen, and the real tactic that you had to use to play Toulouse back then was move them across the pitch if you move their big guys across the pitch your Famuinas, your Takoris, um, they had Gillian Galan at number 8 those days and he was, he's quite a big guy a big robust guy so the plan was move them back and forth as much as possible try and get them tired out and then the spaces will open up out, out wide as Robbo says that's not the case anymore they've got a very mobile pack they've got backs who can get anywhere on the pitch in a lightning quick second so I think Ulster would probably have wanted Exeter whenever you're looking at the two teams that it could have been at you know the final hour on, on Sunday I think they probably would have preferred Exeter purely from the Exeter haven't had a home quarter final before and I think Ulster would probably match up just a little bit better against Toulouse 
they won't be devastated they got Toulouse. I think they'll really relish going to Toulouse and facing a team that they've already beaten. I think they probably feel like they have a score to settle in France after that Clermont game. It won't be the same opposition, but they'll probably try and treat it that way. Um, but it's going to be a cracking match. I'm really mm. looking forward to it because I think once you get that... You know, Ulster's backline up against Toulouse's backline. I think there's some really good matchups there. You look at if Intermac plays 12 and you've got Holmes playing 10, you've got McCluskey up against Intermac, which is two completely contrasting styles going up against each other, which is really exciting. You've got Colby against Stockdale, which would be a, a really interesting battle in terms of the physicality against the fleet-footed South African. I think there's a there's a lot to look forward to mm. in this tie, and I'm surprised more people aren't talking about it as mm. potentially one of the ties of the round because I think it's overshadowed by Leinster Saracens for yeah. obvious reasons. But I think Toulouse against Ulster has a lot to offer in terms of a, a really good game for the neutrals. And, and a couple of quirky stats as well. Obviously, Ulster have won there before at the start uh, start at Ernest uh, Vallon, and Dan McFarland has won there before mm. when he was part of the coaching staff with Connacht. And one of my all time favourite Ulster matches in Europe was the, the famous 35-all draw in that very same stadium when Ulster scored two tries in injury time to, to get that 35-all draw. So wonderful memories of those trips down to the Pink City. What about your season so far? Any good yarns for us? <laughs> good yarns. Working with Stephen Ferris is, is, has, has been entertaining. Uh, Ferris uh, sits or stands to my right and he... He has developed this appalling habit. Whenever Ulster look like they're about to score a try, he thinks this is a good time to, to wrestle me. <laughs> and he's inclined to grab me by the shoulders and start to shake me. But he forgets that I'm trying to commentate at the same time. So Fez, stop being violent when I'm commentating. <laughs> I think that's a fair enough request. Ireland squad... Stuart McCloskey finally is part of the Ireland squad. Why has it taken so long? And why was he not in the original squad? Justice for Stu. It worked. <laughs> Social media came to Stu's rescue. No, I, th- I think Andy Farrell, to be quite honest, made a mistake there because the squad's 35. The French squad is 42 strong. He didn't have to limit the squad to 35. So why not bring Stuart McCluskey to Portugal anyway? And I would include in that Reese Ruddock as well, mm-hmm. because they are two players in top form. It sends out a message from Farrell saying, if you're in form, you will be in my plans. Yeah. Now, whether or not Andy Farrell rates Stuart McCluskey at that highest international level or not, we know that Joe Schmidt possibly didn't. He was a little bit... Uh, concerned maybe about Stuart McCluskey's work rate, maybe that he, he, he tried rather optimistic offloads, which would not fit in at all with, with Joe Schmidt's approach to the game of rugby, which was pretty conservative, really. But yeah, he should have been in from the start for those reasons. Go to Portugal, check out his work rate, embrace him, bring him into the squad and say, if you're playing well enough on the pitch around the country and in Europe, you will be in the panel. Yeah, think there's any chance of him actually getting game time? You'd like to hope so, but it's always one of those ones where when you're not in the initial squad, you're always fighting the uphill battle. can't recall too many players in recent memory who have been called up to a squad late and have suddenly leapfrogged the guys who are already there ahead of them. Mm -hmm. So it might be one where he goes into the company, dispels all those theories around, you know, why he wasn't selected under Joe when all of a sudden Andy Farrell realises... Okay, Stuart McCluskey is actually the best centre in camp. He's fighting that uphill battle of Robbie Henshaw and Bundyaki. Alright, they haven't been in as good form as McCluskey has, but have they been in 
bad enough form that it would justify dropping them. You know, it's one of those ones where you know Henshaw's so good. You know he brings that defensive organization at twelve. You know he brings that that little bit of spark, that little bit of X factor to the back line that I think a lot of people have forgotten that he has. I would have McCluskey ahead of Aki, to be honest, but again, because he wasn't in the initial squad, that's probably not how Farrell's thinking, yeah. but it's one of those ones where if, if he comes in and if he performs well, you never know. Yeah. So step forward anyway, actually. Being there this time for a change? Yeah, he's, he's actually got a chance, and I mean, we've talked about this before, he's limited to 12, which really works against him in terms of a in terms of an yeah. international squad where... You need if he's going to be on the bench, you probably need a couple of positions. Yeah. If you're going to start, you need to get ahead of two guys, and that's mm-hmm. a bit of a tough situation. But you also wonder, you know, with Andy Farrell, where are Ireland going to evolve? And I would have hoped that Ireland would try to evolve along that Stuart McCluskey graph, if you like, and try and bring more of an offloading yeah. game to the Irish side. So maybe it's showing that Andy Farrell is going to play a more conservative, restrictive mm. game plan, certainly initially, because McCluskey brings the elements, I think, that would help to, to bring Ireland forward mm. and for them to bloom into a slightly different style. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point and something to look out for during the Six Nations. Billy Burns and Tom O'Toole getting their, their first call-ups. Is it uh, not a surprise, but that Billy Burns isn't involved so quickly after he's only been here what, 18 months? Uh, not not for me. I think uh, he was he was good last season. He was quite slow out of the blocks. He just signed, obviously. But again, the way he has matured so quickly as a rugby player, he looks so confident now on the field. He's running the side. Ulster can play off nine and ten, which is which is a great luxury to have. Mm-hmm. And Billy Burns, his development for for me in some aspects is the fact that now he. He has the confidence to take to take hold of a match, to take grip of a match, and and to say, right, I am dictating the plays here now, and and that confidence to have that variety in his game, whether it's challenging the gain line a little bit more or those phenomenally accurate kinky dinky cross kicks, as I called them in commentary, one day, and his passing game. I mean, a short pop passing game, short and long. That variety again. Uh, stressing the defences so they're not quite sure what Billy Burns is going to do next no it doesn't surprise me at all to see him take that step and Tom O'Toole big, big boost for him getting in there one of the big things you have to remember with Tom O'Toole and it's something I forget very often he's 21 yeah. like yeah. he's a pop in terms of a uh, tight head prop you know get, mm. there's a general held belief that props only really mature whenever they're about 28 29 you know and into their elite level and you know, Tom O'Toole has been called up into the Ireland squad seven years before he hits that elite level. So what he will learn, like going down to a camp where he'll be learning from Tag Furlong, uh, Dave Kilcoyne, Andrew Porter, uh, Kian Healy, you know, guys that are able to really give him pointers on, okay, here's where you can improve. I think that's going to be massive for him. Like this guy has a lot of potential. And whenever you see that, he is one of the top three props. We'll say maybe top four, given Marty Murr is, is injured at the moment. But, you know, the fact that he is held in that regard already at 21 should have Ulster fans very excited about what he could potentially mature into in terms of propping terms. Like, this, this could be a guy that you potentially have as your tight head prop for 10, 12 years. 
Like yeah. I'm trying not to build him up too much, but like that's <laughs> that's that's the there. kind of potential you have there. If if he's still got a lot of maturing to do, where is the ceiling for this guy? Well, he's already very physically mature. Yeah. I and mean, I I said in commentary in one of the games that Tom O'Toole was born with the six o'clock shadow, and the first thing the midwife did was give him a shave. I mean, whenever you whenever you whenever you see Tom O'Toole close up, and I would go to the captain's runs on a regular basis, he does not look like a a 21-year-old specimen physically at all. He, he has the physique of a 30-year-old prop forward. So, yeah, he's a, he's a very, very exciting man to keep an eye on indeed. So we'll move on to a few listener questions that we have in. There's a couple that we can combine. So Peter Lockhart wants to know what positions Ulster need to strengthen in most to make them compete at the top level in Europe. And Neil Dunn asks about, could Sia Carter and Fallis have occupied Ulster's NIQ spots? So, therefore... What are, what options are there in the other provinces? So what areas would you like to see Ulster strengthening and who from the other provinces could they get to do that? Well, this might seem contradictory, but I've, Tom O'Toole and Eric O'Sullivan are going to be fabulous players and they're already showing signs of being fabulous players. But we are thin in the front row in terms of scrummaging ability. So I think we need to add depth there. We need two solid, craggy, top-class scrummaging props to come off the bench to back up Jack McGrath and Marty Moore. I know you've got other other points I'm sure you want to make, but ju- just to step in there for a second, I think this is where the injury to Gareth Milosinovic has actually mm. hit Ulster a lot more than people realise. Like, we haven't seen him yet, so we don't know what he can offer, but Milosinovic would have been in there as someone you could potentially mm. add into that front-row mix that, you know... If he comes in, he's a good scrummager. Suddenly, that's one of your positions solved. We we don't know, but that's probably what Dan McFarlane and Brent Cunningham were thinking whenever they got Milosinovic in as potentially one of those guys to be coming on off the bench and solidifying things. While O'Sullivan and O'Toole mature into into the scrummaging props they want them to be, so that's one of those positions where I think Ulster have gotten a little bit unlucky in terms of where Ulster need to improve. It it, it is that depth we talked about it last week. Just Having maybe that big ball carrier to come on off the bench in the back row, I think Matty Ray and Nick Timley are two very good players, but they're rather they're more agile players than big strong ball carriers. If you have the likes of, I mean, I always hate making the comparison to Leinster, but I suppose you have to as the best team in Europe. You know, if you have Max Deacon coming on off the bench to replace Caelan Doris, well, you're just replacing one big ball carrier with another and. If you're a defence looking at that guy rolling off the bench, you're thinking, oh boy, here we go again. So it's something like that. I think it's having someone, probably someone a bit more of a maverick to come off the bench in terms of a 10-12 combo. The kind of guy you want Mike Lowry to be, but he's currently Mm -hmm. injured. I think Bill Johnson is going to be a really good 10 in -hmm. terms of a backup to Billy Burns. But for me, I don't see him as the maverick he want coming off the bench to really change a game in the later stages. So I think Ulster, for me, I don't think they have a great deal of improving to do in the starting fifteen. You're going to have you're going to have guys who are going to develop eventually into internationals and into class players. But the problem is with your NIQ spots filled up, there's no one you're really going to go out there and sign that is going to immediately step into this starting 15 and make better. You're going to have to develop those players yourself. And I think that's just where you've got to be patient. You've just got to wait for these guys mm. to 
really become the players that you want them to be and that's what we're talking about with O'Sullivan with O'Toole whenever Lowry comes back you're looking at the guys in the academy like Alison McCann who's going away to captain the Ireland under 20s you just got to wait for these guys to come through and I think that that's the frustrating thing for fans and I understand that you know fans don't want to be sitting there and saying oh well we're going to be great in three years that's great let's let's just lose in quarterfinals every year and wait for all these guys to come through but Unfortunately, that's the case. Unless you get lucky and one of these Leinster guys like Doris or Deegan wants to move or something like that. But I think you just got to be patient. Mm. you just got to wait for these guys to come through. And whenever you have that depth, that's when you can really say, mm. yeah, well, we could actually compete here. Do you think there's anyone Ulster can say? In well, I think there's an interesting concept. And Tommy Bow was talking about it recently on the radio. And is this draft system. I mean, you look at the Irish squad now in Portugal, there are seven players in that squad from the same school in Dublin, St Michael's, where Bernard Jackman has done some coaching. And I know already there are quite a few guys from Leinster in the Ulster squad. In fact, you look at the Irish squad, there are four Ulster-born players in that, was it 36 players now? Mm -hmm. Um, So why not? Why not have a, a kind of a draft system? And then... Ulster can maybe seek out players like Hugh Sullivan and Paddy Patterson, who are the, the three and four ranked scrum halves in Leinster, You're behind Jamison Gibson Park and Luke McGrath, and they have so many back row forwards. And that St Michael's example I'm using is to show that that production line down in, in Leinster is not going to stop. They're mm. going to reel off dozens of players in the next four or five years. I mean, I've heard so many stories and rumours how much money Leinster put into the school system, yeah. and I have it in reasonably good authority that it's millions. I mean, they, they come out of the Leinster school system professional ready into the academy yeah. and ready for first-team rugby, but they're playing A games. I, I watched the A game at CIYMS last Friday, 61-12. Like, that was the third-string Leinster team. Adam Byrne, an international, is playing in that game. And the, the athleticism, the dynamism, the collective... The decision-making, it's all of an exceptionally high standard. Dan McFarland was there as well. I was chatting to him briefly. A lot of those players do not want to spend the rest of their lives playing A-team or Celtic Cup rugby. They want to play first-team rugby. And they can play first-team rugby and in the Champions Cup, potentially, here, Munster, and in in Connacht. A lot of people might not like hearing that because they want the entire Ulster 23 Mm -hmm. to all be born in Ulster. But I'm afraid this is the professional reality of it all. One of the things that they've talked about in previous weeks was how he's recognised that you want Ulster players playing for Ulster, but you got to have that realism yes. of Ulster aren't producing the same number of players as Leinster. And look, if Ulster were able to pump in that much money into the school system as Leinster were, then maybe they could get to that stage. But right now, you've got to be realistic and say, if we want to be competing, we got to be taking some of Leinster's players and we got to be bringing them up here. But make them play for the badge. Don't have them come up and say to them, we want you to play for us and then you know be thinking about going back to Leinster in a few years once you've proven yourself with us. We want you to come up here and be Ulster men. You're not Leinster men playing for Ulster. You're Ulster men. Like, like, like Alan O'Connor, uh, John Cooney, another great example. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. You didn't ask Dan who he had his eye on, no? Uh, we were talking about other things. <laughs> <laughs> you can tell us after yeah. um, uh, Andrew Moffat wants to know who your favourite player nickname. What your, your favourite player nickname is? Favourite player nickname is the great former Toulouse Montpellier Northampton and French number eight Louis Picamol. His nickname is the Iceberg. He has massive thighs, massive hips, and pelvis. And he's called the iceberg because all the power comes 
from below the waterline. <laughs> from the from the bladder down, he is amazing. That's quite good. Who comes up with these things? Well, I think it was James Haskell actually invented that nickname for him. Sounds like a Haskell. Thing. Yeah, because Haskell had a spell you might remember <laughs> playing in France at Stade Francais, and he played against Pickaboe, and I think it is it is a Haskell nickname and well, if he hasn't invented it he, he told me he was the man who told me <laughs> on a touchline do you know what we call him and he told me the, the nickname so there you go iceberg so we have a few questions that basically hurt back to the things we talked about last week so somebody hasn't listened to the podcast but yeah, <laughs> if you want to know more about how we think Dave Shanahan get on in Cooney's absence and Saracens you can listen to the I think it was at the end of last week's podcast yep. wasn't it? so you can have a little listen to that now Dono has a question that would take us the rest of the podcast to actually read out if we read it in full but um, he's basically talking about the potential for a British and Irish league and would the salary cap be an issue for that now what's the prospect of this actually happening well I think there's a, there's a chance there's been enough talk about it the, the problem with the salary cap is that the English clubs would not want to go outside the, the, the 7 million salary cap that they already have and of course it's been a very controversial subject of late CVC coming in and they come in on the commercial side so that will not affect the salary or salary cap the CVC investment is on the promotion of the game and the, the fundamentals and academies and, and areas like that so it won't affect it if there's a BNI league if you try to apply a salary cap to Leinster for example I suspect they will recoil because they're they're playing budget let's have a little guess here and I'm making the number up let's go for 10 or 11 million sterling so they'll not want to adhere to a seven million salary cap mm-hmm. so that that's your first battleground that's one of your black swans and there's going to be a lot of issues like that that would have to be ironed out to get a british and irish league up and running attractive as it may sound next point the pro 14 has been looked at as sort of second rate for its entire existence probably is that uh, still fair particularly points to the saracens going on across the water I've always thought, well, first of all, Saracens will not be joining the Pro 14, and <laughs> I don't understand where that came from at all. But um, Did he didn't hear that when people talking about that. Yeah, Rugby Pass had an article in asking should Saracens join the Pro 14, and I actually thought it was a bit of a joke article for a bit. But um, I think whenever you whenever you take a look at the leagues, you you sort of look at it as. How do the teams do in Europe? That's your only real comparison between the leagues. You can look at it as, you know, Premiership and Top 14 have relegation and you're playing your stronger teams more often. But the real comparison is how the teams do in Europe. And if you look at the breakdown this year in terms of teams reaching the last eight in Europe, well, the Pro 14 has two. Top 14 has three. And the Premiership has three. Three theoretically, yes, it is. Pro fourteen is the weaker weakest of the three leagues, and whenever you consider then that the two uh, Pro fourteen teams reaching the last eight in Europe are Irish, that dilutes it even further. But whenever you consider sort of the the gap between the leagues, I think you have to look at the context in which they're played in. The Pro fourteen, yes, you don't get the full teams as much as the Premiership and the top fourteen and. You can have an argument about that for whatever reason. But at the same time, is the standard of rugby any weaker? I mean, Leicester are considered the best team in Europe, and they come from mm. the Pro 14. Does that not carry any weight in terms of the Pro 14 being the strongest league? All right, you've got the Italian teams, but Benetton have made a lot of progression. Benetton, I thought, pushed 
Leinster quite hard at the weekend, even though they ultimately lost quite handily. Like I, th- I thought Benetton were pretty much toe-to-toe with Leinster for maybe about 60 minutes. They pushed mm. Northampton all the way the week before, and they're in the last eight of Europe. So I think the Pro 14 is looked down on purely because there's that argument of you don't have all your players all the time, and I think that's just not a good reason. I mean, mm. in terms of quality, I think if you put... The top six teams from the Pro 14 up against the top six teams in the top 14 in the Premiership, you would have parity in pretty much every mm-hmm. game, to be honest. Yeah. Well, I, I, the, the Pro 14, for, for me, yes, there's an argument there for a start too many one sided matches. You know, there are margins of two, three, four scores, but I find it an incredibly exciting league, and it's because we do get the opportunity to see the young players. Coming through like Human Balakun here, there's a long yeah. list. Michael Laurie, so many more. Uh, Deegan and Doris, and you know, Jordan Larmer went from being a St Andrews schoolboy to a Grand Slam champion in about 20 minutes mm. because he had the opportunities yeah. to play at that high level mm-hmm. and get game time against good players. So I, I I see team sheets now, and I see young players, and I what, like Craig Casey being the latest example mm. for Munster. That 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 fills me with with joy and happiness, to be honest. It makes those neutral games a lot more interesting for yeah. neutrals watching because you're looking at these guys and you're thinking, okay, well, how's he going to develop? Mm-hmm. How's he going to go? I mean, Craig Casey in point, I think Fanine Witcherly is someone I'm trying to keep a big eye on because apparently he's ripping up trees down in Munster. Um, yeah, I, th- I think there's there's so much excitement about the Pro 14. The thing is, it's ambitious. You know, you bring mm-hmm. in the South African teams to add in a new dimension to it. You know, the Premiership teams, you're making the same trips every single season. Whereas, you know, for Ulster, you suddenly have trips to Bloemfontein and Port Elizabeth. They're talking about potentially going to America. There's Mm -hmm. talk of Georgian teams. I don't know how close they are to completing those deals. But, you know, there's more ambition. I think Mm -hmm. the Pro 14, you've got to give it a lot of credit for what it's trying to do. And look... There's a realisation that maybe whenever you get to the lower reaches of the Pro 14, the standard isn't quite as good if you put the Southern Kings up against a few of those lower teams in the Premiership. The Premiership teams would probably win out. But in terms of the top tier teams Mm. of the Pro 14, there's absolutely no difference in standard Mm. between the top teams in the Premiership of the top 14. I think that's that's the main thing. You talk about that... Uh, sort of adventure and uh, expanding the league obviously the most exciting one would be America if that's mm-hmm. ever going to happen and there is sort of a, an increased interest from over there particularly in the Six Nations here there is yeah NBC Gold are showing all of the Six Nations games live Alex Corbusiero in the studio the former British and Irish Lions prop and Dan Lyle the former Bath number 8 and uh, US Eagle great uh, I see in the last couple of days that uh, the um LR Major League Rugby have signed a new television deal with ESPN. Is it is it Fox with the two? Yep. Are they the two channels? Yep. So they're expanding. They've, they've four teams on the East Coast. Um, the Seattle Sea Wolves are the star team there. They've won the last two titles. It's a long way to fly for a Pro 14 game <laughs> to Seattle on the West Coast. But those four teams, New England Jacks and the other the other sides there, and you can you can just feel and see the American game growing in terms of. Um, it's ascendancy on television, that it's getting much more television time. They also covered the World Cup in depth, showing most of the games live there. My old Sky colleague, Rupert Cox, was over presenting the games for, for NBC. So you can feel a real energy growing mm. in the States. And we know that is a massive yeah. market. And we know the Pro 14, if they get a chance, would maybe just like to tap into it. 
you look at the Irish expats out there as well, you know, guys, guys like David yeah. Busby has just signed for the Seattle Seawolves, so mm-hmm. it's a very attractive place for guys to play, and if you bring in that option of, you know, having a, I don't want to say a professional team, because those teams are professional, but if you bring in, like, a, a, a Pro 14 team yeah. in North America... All of a sudden, there's a lot more interest there. You can bring a lot more guys into into the mix in terms of potentially bringing guys from the Southern Hemisphere up there and creating a, a super team in, in the North, in North America. And whether America works out or not, and obviously you can't bring American sides in unless they're Pro 14 ready and they're going to be professional yeah. entities and co- compete at this level. But that is the exciting thing, that the Pro 14 are prepared to potentially explore those other markets yeah, and, ex- and expand that league in that way. And you look at the, the, the Super Rugby. I mean, there was a made-up team, Jaguares. What are they doing in this competition? They got to the final last year. Mm-hmm. It didn't take them that long. Now, yeah. of course, you're picking from the Argentinian national side. It is the Argentinian <laughs> national side. It's a totally different entity than what we're seeing at the moment in America, but it shows you that potential. Yeah, Their favourites right. to get to the final again this year, like so... Time will tell. We, we can dream of all these changes for now, though uh, that's us for this week. So we'll be back next week to take a little bit more of an in-depth look at the upcoming Six Nations. So for now, from Adam McKendry. Thank you very much. From our guest commentator, Mark Robson. Thank you very thank you much. For, thank you for coming in, Mark. And for me, Gareth Hanna, thanks for listening. The Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast with open reach, building the broadband network that connects us all. Check for ultra-fast, ultra-reliable full-fibre broadband at openreach.co.uk forward slash ni.